This is such an incredibly lovely venue, and I wasn't even planning to use the PowerPoint until I saw the screen. <laughs> it's like going to the movies, so um, I think we better take advantage of it. Uh, this is a time when um, all things drones are happening. When I wrote this book, it was a very different situation. There were very uh, few people who were focused on this. There were few reporters that were putting out information. It was very hard to get information. Uh, and there wasn't the kind of movement that there is today. And uh, Judy referred to the New York Times article that talked about a decrease in the number of drones. Uh, and uh, it gave a number of reasons for it, but I think one of the most important reasons uh, was missing from that article, and that is that there is a movement in the United States uh, that has really been very active. Uh, in fact, raise your hands if you've been involved in any kind of anti-drone work here. So a number of you have, and I want to recognize Max, who is one of the great uh, activists we have, and I uh, want to make sure you have a chance to talk about what's happening in the Baltimore area. Uh, but there really is, in the last year, an incredible movement that's been built up that has been focusing on the bases where these drones are being remotely piloted from, the uh, companies that are producing the drones, um, and uh, putting a lot of pressure on President Obama. In fact, one of the colonels in the military who was invited to Obama's talk tomorrow uh, told us that he credits the uh, protest movement for President Obama even giving the talk tomorrow uh, because uh, the president has been silent about these issues for five years now. Uh, and it's only because of this focus attention now that he feels obligated to talk about it. So I want to go quickly through some of these slides, which is more a background for those of you who haven't been focusing on this issue. And then uh, hopefully we'll have a time for discussion and uh, talk about some of the activism, which I think is so important. So when 9-11 happened, um, there weren't a lot of drones being used uh, in by the US government. Uh, and suddenly, uh, the drones started to proliferate. In fact, there were maybe 50 drones that the Pentagon had uh, at the time of the 9-11 attack, and now there are so many thousands of them that uh, it's hard to really um, uh, count them. There are uh, probably about over 10,000 drones uh, that the US government in one form or another use. There's all different kinds of drones, and the interpreters here asked me in the beginning, is a drone something that always is in the air? Um, yes, a drone is basically something that is flying. It could look like that little hummingbird. In fact, that is a drone. Uh, it could look like that dragonfly. Uh, the next time you see uh, a bird flying outside your window, you want, might wonder if the government is spying on you or if that really is a, a beautiful bird in your feeder. Um, and uh, so it's something that flies in the air that has a camera on it. So believe it or not, those tiny little things would have some kind of camera on them. And they would be relaying that camera information remotely. Uh, uh, this kind of drone here, uh, the switchblade, is one that is, uh, there are thousands of these that the military uses. The soldiers put them in their backpack, and they can be used for scouting. In fact, most of the drones are used for surveillance purposes, uh, and um, uh, some of them are used actually for some good causes. 
There are drones that are used to pinpoint forest fires, to stop uh, illegal logging in the Amazon. Uh, there are environmental groups that are using drones to track endangered species. And there are a lot of potential commercial uses for drones that we will probably be seeing a lot of in the coming years. But I'm going to focus on the Predator and Reaper drones, the drones that are being used to kill people. These are made by a company in Southern California called General Atomics, and they're being piloted from here in the United States. So just think about, on, on some level, there's a, an amazing technology that has been developed where you can sit in an Air Force base in the United States in a air-conditioned room in a pretty comfortable chair. In fact, there was a study done that said that the chairs were not comfy enough and they made them more ergonomic. And you can press a button that's killing people 10,000 miles away in a country that you've never been to, a culture you, that you don't know, a people you don't know. Um, it is quite amazing. I dedicate a chapter of the book to the pilots because I think it's important to understand who are these pilots. There are now more pilots being trained for uh, these remote controlled airplanes than there are pilots being trained for being in a cockpit. Uh, and the um, uh, oh, I thought this was a nice New Yorker cartoon that says, oh, you're attacking from home today, uh, <laughs> which is possible with this technology now. One of the biggest complaints when the Pentagon did a study of drone pilots was boredom because so many had signed up to be in the battlefield and yet they're sitting hour after hour, day after day, looking at a screen. But as I document in the, in the book, there are a lot of pilots who are very uncomfortable with this new kind of warfare where they're not really comfortable about being killers by day and then going home to their family at night and supposed to be well integrated into the community. Uh, and so you see quite a high percentage of PTSD among drone pilots, similar to pilots in the battlefield. So you might be asking, well, who are these pilots supposed to be killing? There are two ways that the pilots are given the okay to kill. And one is an actual kill list that is determined by the president himself in what they call Terror Tuesdays, where the uh, president's advisors come to the White House, they meet together, and they look at a list. In fact, they nominate people to be on a list. They say they kind of look like baseball cards, where you look at the picture and the profile, and you determine who is going to be on this list. Um, it is quite remarkable to think uh, that, the, that President Obama is a constitutional lawyer and yet has allowed himself to be in this position where he plays the role of prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner all at once. Um, there is a, a lot of, um, in, in Obama's talk tomorrow, he's supposed to be talking about the uh, underpinnings of this drone program, supposed to be more open with the American people, and he's also supposed to talk about Guantanamo. And these issues are very much related. And I don't know if you've been following in the news what's been happening in Guantanamo, but it is a crisis situation where there are 166 people who are left in Guantanamo, most of whom have been there now for 11 years. 
and they have not been charged, they've not been tried, most of them not accused of anything. In fact, 86 of them have been cleared for release by government agencies saying they are no threat to the United States and should be sent back to their home countries. And yet for the last two years, none have been sent back. And so imagine the kind of desperation that these men feel uh, that they have been cleared for release and not released. And so Obama is supposed to talk about that tomorrow as well. Uh, uh, it's uh, just speculation right now what he's going to say about Guantanamo. It might be that he's going to appoint somebody high up in the White House to start clearing these people. Uh, it might be that he is going to uh, actually do the, the military review process that he promised and hasn't been done. Uh, but it's important to understand how Guantanamo and drones are intimately linked to each other because under the Bush administration there was more of a policy of capturing people and putting them into Guantanamo and that's how we got the hundreds and hundreds up to eight, over 800 people who were being detained in Guantanamo. Uh, when Obama came in, they decided that for several reasons uh, it wasn't, it didn't make sense for them to capture people and put them into Guantanamo. One reason is because Obama campaigned that he was going to close Guantanamo and so it wouldn't look good to start putting people in there after he said he was going to close it. And the other thing he realized is that it's um, difficult to figure out what you do when people are in Guantanamo. Do you give them civilian trials, military trials? Are they enemy combatants? Uh, are they, um, uh, they criminals that should be tried in criminal courts? Um, and to not have to deal with this messiness, uh, they decided it was literally cleaner to just kill people. And so that has been uh, the, the alternative to Guantanamo has been these drone strikes. I mentioned that one of the ways that they kill people is by a list that they come up with. The other way is called the signature strike. And that is when the, um, uh, the determination is made that somebody is engaged in uh, suspicious activities that um, we have been told uh, that suspicious activities could be a meeting that looks like it's a meeting of, of Taliban, of Al-Qaeda. But that is very problematic because we've also, uh, it seems, that the administration has said that any male of military age that lives in the area where we are using these drones is automatically a militant. So if a group is gathered that ha is young men having beards, wearing turbans, carrying guns, which characterize many places uh, where we are using these drones, they are automatically considered militants. Um, so all we know is of the thousands of people who have been killed by these drones, and we don't know how many thousands there are. Uh, Lindsey Graham, a senator who um, probably has gotten inside briefings from uh, the U.S., uh, the executive branch, uh, put out the figure 4,700. Um, but all we know is that only 2% of those people have been on the list of high target people, on that first list that I talked about. We don't know who the other 98% are. Many of them innocent people, although our government has told us that only a handful of innocent people have been killed. That is a lie. Um, and uh, many of them low-level people. 
uh, who have to date rena remained anonymous. Uh, where are we using these drones? Well, they are being used in, uh, they were heavily used in Iraq. They are still uh, used quite often in Afghanistan. In fact, I think I have something here that shows the tremendous increase in the number of missiles that were launched from the drones in 2011, 294, and when the war is supposed to be winding down in Afghanistan, here you see this tremendous increase in the number, number of uh, missiles that were launched from the drones to 506 in 2012. Uh, it's interesting that this was on the Pentagon's website, and then all of a sudden it disappeared from the Pentagon website. If you go now, you'll see this all scrubbed out of there. Um, what we don't know is how many people have been killed. Um, I want to go back a second to look at the other places that we have been using the drones. Uh, Libya, an interesting case because this was a case where uh, you would think to get involved in military activity, the executive branch would have to go to Congress to get permission. After all, that's how the Constitution was written. It's supposed to be the Congress that decides whether we're going to go to war. Uh, but in this case, because drones were being used, the executive branch said no American lives will be at risk. I mean, they're sitting here in Air Force bases. Their lives are not at risk. And so we don't have to go to Congress to get permission. So you see what a, what a tremendous abuse of power it is by the executive branch. And they can get away with it in the case of drones. Being used in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, and potentially in Mali. We know a lot of drone bases are being set up in places like Kuwait, Oman, Qatar. Saudi Arabia, I think, is important to note, especially because uh, do you remember uh, Osama bin Laden, one of the reasons he gave for wanting to attack the United States? Bases in Saudi Arabia, bases in the homeland. Uh, George Bush, while he went ahead and invaded Iraq, a country that had nothing to do with 9-11, uh, did close down the bases in Saudi Arabia, knowing how antagonistic they were to the Muslim world. And then we have, under President Obama, the opening of a base in Saudi Arabia for drones. Uh, so it's very disconcerting to see the number of, of drone bases that are being set up because it, it gives you an idea of the plans to use drones more and more in the future. Uh, in the case of Pakistan, this is the place outside of Afghanistan and Iraq where most of the drones have been used. In the case of Pakistan, it's not the military using the drones, it's the CIA. And you might not know it, but the CIA is not a military organization. The CIA should never have been given the chance to have its own fleet of lethal drones. In fact, one of the things that President Obama will probably mention tomorrow is the plans to move uh, the, the drone program away from the CIA to have it inside the military. Uh, something that is a positive step, but certainly not enough. Uh, in terms of the number of drone strikes, there are over 350 of them that have been used in Pakistan. Uh, the number of people killed range from 2,500 to 3,500 in Pakistan. Uh, we know that there are probably about 200 children that have been killed. 
You know, there uh, have been polls done that show a majority of Americans favoring this drone program. And I think one of the reasons is because we never see the results. We never see the children who have been killed. We never see the victims. Uh, we met with a photographer in Pakistan who takes pictures of these drone strikes. And he says one of the problems, and I talk about this in the book, uh, is that the drones, the impact is so tremendous that the victims are usually vaporized. And there is oftentimes just pieces of flesh lying around. So these pictures I'm going to show you, taken by this man uh, right here, uh, are actually uh, people who are not targeted by the drone strikes, but are the unintended consequences, also known as collateral damage. And I wonder if the American people got a chance not only to see these pictures, but to hear the kind of stories that I write about in the chapter on victims, um, would their hearts go out to these people and would they perhaps start changing their mind and thinking that drone strikes were not such a, uh, a beneficial thing. Um, this is a, a man whose story I go into detail in the book. Uh, he lost his son and his brother. Uh, this is his home that was totally destroyed. Uh, this is his son and brother, both school teachers who actually were teaching kids at the school that it was more important to get an education than it was to pick up a gun and join the Taliban. And he said to us, what lesson do you think was learned by the hundreds of students in that school when their beloved teachers were killed in a drone strike? Um, this is an example of a signature strike. Uh, these men we met with in, in Pakistan, uh, they told us about how a group of leaders uh, in one of the areas in northern Pakistan was uh, we're, we're uh, meeting together in a traditional setting called a jirga, where they come together to resolve local disputes. In this case, it was a dispute over a, a mining company. And to somebody far away, it looked like it was a group of no good Taliban, and they sent in the drones and killed 42 people. And these were 42 of the most respected leaders of the community. So you can imagine the kind of hatred that is spread by incidents like this. Uh, this is a young man whose cousin was killed by a drone. Uh, he was invited to the capital city, Islamabad, uh, with 80 other drone victims to meet with lawyers to try to see how they could use the courts. Uh, and actually, just last week, um, the high court in Peshawar came out with a, a, um, a judgment that was scathing towards this drone program. It said that the drones were war crimes. Uh, it said that the Pakistani government has to do more to stop these, uh, that it should give a very severe warning to the United States. And if the US didn't stop it, it suggested that the Pakistani government should shoot down these drones. Um, something that would be very difficult for Pakistan to do, given they get billions of dollars from the US. Um, but uh, it was um, the first time that the courts had actually come out with this kind of a, a judgment. Only symbolic at this point, but very important in uh, pushing the government. Uh, in this case, here he is at a meeting in the capital city where he's being taught to use a, a video camera so that he could go back in his village and uh, document the drones. Um, unfortunately, the first case to be documented after that meeting was his own death that happened two days later. This is all that remains of that young man. There was a study that was done by two academic institutions, uh, NYU and Stanford. 
and I added it to this updated edition of the book because they came out with such important findings. Uh, until then, we had focused a lot on the number of people who are killed by the drones. But what this study did is say that's not the only thing to look at, that it's really important to look at what the drones actually do to entire communities and how it really is a weapon of collective punishment because the technology is so sophisticated that these drones just don't come and drop bombs and leave. They hover. They stay in the villages. They stay for days at a time sometimes weeks at a time. And so what this does is terrorize the entire community where the children are afraid to go to bed at night, where they're afraid to go to school during the day, where people are afraid to go to the marketplace, afraid to go to collective gatherings like weddings and funerals that have been attacked. Uh, this study even talked about how the U.S. had a, a, um, a, a policy of doing secondary strikes, also known as double taps. So they'd send in one round of drones and then immediately after send in another round to kill those who weren't killed in the first round and how that led to the killing of rescue workers or any humanitarian people who came to help the victims of the first round of drones. And in fact, they even talked to a humanitarian organization in the region that said they would not allow their rescue workers to go in until six hours after a drone strike because they were so afraid that the rescue workers would get killed. Um, that is a war crime. Killing rescue workers, killing humanitarian workers is a war crime. So. Um, the response from the Pakistanis has been tremendous on the level of grassroots. Um, just about everybody in Pakistan hates drone strikes. They hate the Taliban, they hate Al-Qaeda, and they hate the drone strikes. In fact, three out of four Pakistanis in one poll said they considered the United States the enemy. And when the foreign minister was asked, why do so many Pakistanis hate the United States, she had a one-word answer, and that was drones. Uh, what the Pakistani government is saying is that these drones kill many innocent people. They uh, are the best recruiting tool that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have. They uh, radicalize the population, not only against the United States, but also against the Pakistani government. And it's the Pakistani military, the Pakistani police, who bear the brunt of them because tens of thousands of them have been killed as part of this escalation of the conflict. Unfortunately, a policy that has had such terrible consequences has uh, been transferred over to another country, and that is Yemen. And while that New York Times article today talked about a decrease in the number of drone strikes in Pakistan, and I think that is precisely because of the outcry in Pakistan, uh, in the last year there has been an increase in the number of drone strikes in Yemen. In fact, it was interesting in that article today, it said there have been no drone strikes in Yemen in February and March. They failed to say that there have been drone strikes in Yemen in January and in April and in May. In fact, just this last weekend there were drone strikes in Yemen. And the same kind of results has happened in that there, uh, uh, a group called Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, when the Obama administration started these drone strikes in 2009, only had about 200 members. Today, they supposedly have about 1,000 members. Um, so again, this has been a recruiting tool. And in fact, we heard that in a very poignant way on April 23rd, 
uh, just last month when this young man had a chance to testify before Congress. This was the first time in all the years that the drones have been used uh, that there was actually somebody from the country that was invited to testify. And something very extraordinary happened in that this young man had been doing work uh, interviewing victims of drone strikes, the family members, and that's why he was invited to come to the United States to testify. But coincidentally, just the week before he was supposed to come, his own village was uh, the target of a drone strike. And raise your hand if you heard uh, any, his testimony or pieces of it. So not many of you got a chance to hear it. If you do have a chance to go back and maybe Google his name on, on YouTube, uh, it is quite uh, extraordinary to hear what he said. He said things like um, he had interviewed a man who uh, had his uh, six-year-old dying in his arms uh, as he tried to rush him to a hospital um, after the two children were killed in a drone strike. He talked about a young boy who carried a picture of an airplane in his pocket and said that his goal now was to take revenge uh, after the killer of his father, who was killed in a drone strike. And when asked who was that killer, he replied, America. And he talked uh, about how uh, this young man actually loves the United States, that he had a chance to be on an exchange program when he was in high school, and how it changed his life. Um, that he had an extraordinary year in the United States. Uh, he loved the people. He became so close to the family, to the students that he was with. And he had gone back to his village and gone back to Yemen uh, to talk about how wonderful the United States was. And that in one instant, with that drone strike in his village, uh, it totally changed the attitude of people towards the United States. He said in one instance, the drone strike did what Al-Qaeda was never able to do in years, and that is turn people against the United States. And he said he's now afraid to say that he's, he lived in the United States. He's afraid to say that he has friends in the United States. He was even afraid after testifying to go back to his own village. Um, so uh, this was a, a, just astounding testimony to hear in the US Congress. This is a picture of a young man that I would like you to really pay close attention to uh, because this is an American citizen. Uh, he was a 16-year-old born in the United States in Denver. Now, today, something else extraordinary happened, which is leading up to the speech tomorrow. Today, the Attorney General released a letter in which he admitted for the first time that the US government has killed four people, four Americans, in drone strikes. Now, one of the Americans killed is this young man's father. And the letter goes into great detail about the reasons that his father, Anwar al-Awlaki, was targeted. Um, uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, according to what Eric Holder said in the letter today, was not only a fiery cleric who talked against the United States, um, but he was also involved in activities to kill Americans. 
in the United States, one would think that you would then be charged with something and have the possibility to be captured and have a trial. Um, that was not the case. He was put on a kill list. Now, it says here he couldn't be captured. We don't know the reasons for that. But in any case, this uh, letter goes into great detail about why Anwar al-Alaki, the father, was targeted. Um, what he doesn't say at all is uh, the circumstances of the killing of the other three Americans. It seems like the killing of the other three Americans was a mistake, uh, collateral damage. But uh, the government has not uh, given us the circumstances for the killing of this young man who was killed in a separate drone strike uh, in Yemen two weeks after his father was killed. Uh, you might look at the quote I put at the bottom, former uh, White House spokesman Robert Gibbs, when asked to justify the killing of the younger Alawaki said, I would suggest that you should have a far more responsible father. Um, I don't think that uh, in the United States somebody is supposed to be killed because we don't like their father. Um, there was a, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion uh, in tomorrow's uh, uh, talk by Obama on the justification for killing American citizens. But um, when Eric Holder gave his first attempt to justify the killing of American citizens, he did so at Northwestern University in front of a group of law students. And he said something that I thought was quite extraordinary, which is that American citizens, by the virtue of being American, does not guarantee you the right to a judicial process. Raise your hand if you thought Americans had the right to a judicial process. So you were wrong, and the president will explain a bit more tomorrow, I think. Uh, I was in a hearing in Congress this morning where uh, there were attempts at explanation and legal, legal scholars who said, no way. Um, but when uh, Eric Holder talked about it, I expected that the legal community would be up in arms and say, what do you mean uh, we don't have the right to judicial process? I thought that was part of the Constitution. Uh, and indeed, the, the best response I found and put in the book came not from the legal community, but from a late night comedian. <laughs> and that is Stephen Colbert. <laughs> he said, yes, the founding fathers weren't picky. Trial by jury, trial by fire, rock, paper, scissors, who cares? Due process just means there is a process that you do. <laughs> the current process is the president meets with his advisors, decides who to kill, and then kills them. If we are going to win our never-ending war on terror, says Colbert, there are bound to be casualties, and one of them just happens to be the US Constitution. I thought that was a great uh, quote. And um, I'm, I'm not going to go through these legal issues here, but I do want to focus on two more issues, and one is the question of the proliferation of drones. And uh, I think that we should all ponder that question. Would the US allow any other country to fire drones into the United States against our citizens? Uh, anybody got a response to that? Of course not. Of course not. But yet, 
there are many countries and non-state entities that are now acquiring drones. It's not just the United States. In fact, if you look at this map, what's in yellow here are countries that already have uh, drones. These are not armed drones yet. The Predator and Reaper drones that we used to kill people were not armed drones in the beginning either. They were surveillance drones. And the ones in red here are countries that have armed uh, drones. This, um, according to the US government, there are 76 countries now that have drones. Uh, the first, the number one exporter is not the United States, but is Israel. And the number third exporter is uh, China that has gotten into this in a big way because it is now a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, other countries that the US government says are not our uh, friendly allies like Iran is producing its own armed drones. Iran even got a big boost in its drone program because it hacked into one of the US spy drones that was <laughs> flying over Iran, brought it down, showed it to the world media and said, thank you very much, President Obama, for the gift that you have given us of this very sophisticated spy drone. They reversed engineer it and are now producing their own. So there is tremendous proliferation and arms race already in drones. And then there is the issue about uh, not uh, just people who uh, might want to do us harm using drones against us in the United States, but there is the question of our own uh, government using drones against us in the United States and other uses of drones in the United States. Raise your hand if you follow the filibuster that Rand Paul, the senator, did uh, in, in Congress. So only a couple of you did. For those of you who didn't, Rand Paul is a, um, a conservative Republican. He is a Tea Party favorite. Um, he might not be the one that you would think of automatically as the champion of human rights around the world. But in this case of topsy-turvy politics in Washington, where uh, the progressive, more uh, democratic uh, uh, senators in Congress would be the ones yelling and screaming about this program if it were happening under George Bush, when it's happening under Obama, have been silent about it. Not only silent about it, they've actually been very complicit because when President Obama uh, nominated John Brennan, to be the head of the CIA, John Brennan had been the mastermind of this drone program. And it was the Republicans speaking out against John Brennan, like Rand Paul did in his filibuster on the Senate floor. And it was the Democrats, every single one of them except for two, and I think that was Merkley in, in Oregon, and it was uh, Leahy, uh, Senator Leahy. The rest of them, including very progressive people like Elizabeth Warren and Tammy Baldwin and uh, Al Franken and uh, whoever else you think might be a progressive Democratic senator, all voted for this guy who was the, uh, involved in uh, the CIA under Bush when they were using a torture and extraordinary rendition and indefinite detention, and then on top of that, mastermind of a totally unaccountable, out-of-control drone program. Uh, but um, 
Rand Paul was one of the few who spoke out, and his focus was, can the US government use drones to kill people here in the United States? And it was a very torturous kind of response from the Obama administration, because instead of just saying no, uh, and that would be the end of it, uh, hemmed and hawed and gave Rand Paul a platform, in fact, a 13-hour platform, uh, to talk about the way the US government had been using drones around the world and the potential of drones being used against us here at home. Now, the only reason there aren't tens of thousands of drones in our airspace right now is because the airspace is controlled by the Federal Aviation Administration that is in charge of our safety, and they know that these drones are not particularly safe. They, they crash all the time. They can be hacked into. Uh, the technology is, is still in its early stages. They don't do very well in, in weather conditions. And uh, so they've been reluctant to open up the airspace. But because uh, of pressure, there have been hundreds of entities from universities to uh, government agencies to um, uh, law enforcement agencies and companies that have gotten uh, permits for experimental use of drones. And I want to make sure that Max and anybody else here that's involved with John Hopkins University can talk about uh, the way that Johns Hopkins is an example of the university's complicity with the, uh, uh, with the military in developing uh, these weapons. Uh, but because the way that our democracy works these days is that if you are companies, you band together and you form a lobby. And then your lobby group spends millions of dollars to buy congresspeople. And then these congresspeople, in turn, form a caucus within Congress. And believe it or not, there actually is a caucus in Congress that is called the Association of Unmanned Vehicle Systems. And that caucus uh, is, is forcing the FAA to open up our airspace to drones. And so what we will see in the coming years is tens of thousands of drones in our airspace. But something really fascinating is happening right now, and that is there is a pushback uh, in states across this country saying we're not quite sure that we are ready to have drones flying overhead. And that is coming from the left and the right and a strange coalition of people and organizations. Um, the law enforcement agencies, there's about 30 of them that are experimenting with drones. One of them is one that's uh, outside of Houston, Texas. And this is part of a militarization of police forces in, these in this country. I mean, why should police forces be dressed like this and have a ridiculous tank like this? Um, and, and, uh, uh, and then they go and buy a drone. Now, you might say, well, how does a little police department in Texas have money to buy drones? Um, that would be a good question to ask. And the answer to that is they don't. But Homeland Security is giving grants to police departments to buy these drones, to kind of hook them on this. And first they get a, a nice little cute drone like this, but these are not really very stable. And in fact, when this um, uh, sheriff's department held their press conference to show off their new drone, this drone started flying in the air and then immediately crashed into the tank. <laughs> <laughs> 
And you might say, yay, except what probably happens after that is they go to Homeland Security and say, we need more money because we need to buy a better drone. But there is so much um, a hue and cry now about why do these police departments need drones uh, that some areas like in Seattle where they, uh, the police department bought drones, the community demanded a town hall meeting and that the mayor appear and the police department come and there was just an, a tremendous pushback against the drones, so much so that the mayor had to apologize to the city and return those drones. And that I think we can clap for. So what cities and states are doing is saying the technology has surpassed the laws we have in place to use these drones. Because is it legal for a drone to be just right out there and looking at what you're doing in your home? Is that uh, violating your privacy or not? Is that public space? Is that private space? We don't know. So communities are calling in the ACLU and other legal organizations and saying, if we are going to use these drones, we want laws protecting our privacy. We want court orders uh, to be uh, in, it required before uh, drones are used to uh, spy on somebody. But there is a pushback by the lobby because uh, they certainly want to sell these drones to the 18,000 police departments. And you can imagine that in the wake of the bombing in uh, Boston, that the drone association said, aha, if Boston had had the drones overhead, they would have immediately caught who had done that bombing. And there are police departments now saying that when there are major events happening, they need drones for crowd control. And this is another now push for the marketing of these drones here at home. And um, I want to end with um, a, a talking about a, a trip that we made to Pakistan because uh, I talked about the growing movement against drones, whether it's locally where cities are passing these resolutions to either prohibit the use of drones by law enforcement agencies or call for a moratorium until the laws are in place, uh, or that is happening on a statewide level, or the protests that I mentioned that are happening at bases, uh, protests that are happening at the headquarters of manufacturers. Um, but uh, also, we thought it was important to go to the places where the drones are being used so um, prolifically, and in this case, decided to go to Pakistan. And we put out a call saying that um, we were going to organize a trip and who wanted to come and join us. Well, if you look at what Pakistan, how it's portrayed in the news, it's always about bombings and bombings and violence and violence. And so it was a scary thing for people to commit to going to Pakistan. It was also expensive and everybody had to raise their own funds. We didn't have money to uh, bring people. And yet, lo and behold, there were 34 people from around the country uh, who raised their own money and decided to go. And we met in the capital city in, in Islamabad. Uh, Taig, my partner here, was there. Um, and remember, Taig, when we got together in the, in the lobby of the hotel and said, uh, who had a loved one who said, please do not go on that trip? And everybody raised their hand. 
And then we were met by the ambassador, the US ambassador, who came and talked to us about how dangerous it was to be there and tried to talk us out of our plan to go up into the tribal areas where the drones are being used. And he said that they hate Americans there, don't go there, it's very dangerous. And the day that we were supposed to set out on a caravan with um, a very famous uh, uh, cricketeer turned politician in, in uh, Pakistan named Imran Khan, uh, the U.S. Uh, the embassy sent over somebody from their security department to tell us not to go, saying it was urgent. They had credible information that the Taliban knew we were there because we had been on the front pages of the papers every day and we had been in the newspapers every day. Of course they knew we were there. Uh, and that they were going to try to kill us, that they were loading donkeys and camels with explosives and they were going to uh, blow us up. Well, we didn't take that lightly. We took that very seriously. And we sat around and talked about it. And some of us said, look, there is no reason for us to go up to the tribal area. We've already met with drone victims right here in Islamabad. We've already been in the papers every day, uh, on the TV screens. And we don't have to take this as extra risk. And I was amazed that this group of people, after talking about it very seriously, said, the people where we are going don't have the luxury of deciding whether they want to put their lives at risk. Um, and uh, we, we came here to meet with them, and we think we should go ahead. So we went, and it was a very scary trip. We got there late at night. The next morning, um, oh, well, here we had done some, some uh, protests in the streets in Islamabad. Uh, we had also done a 24-hour fast in the middle of the capital city so people could come up and, and talk to us. Uh, we met with women's organizations and uh, held hands as women and said in English and in Urdu, we will not raise our children to kill other mothers' children. And then we had a chance uh, in as close to the tribal area as we could get to address this big crowd of people and you can imagine how scared we were walking up onto the stage and uh, thinking that you know this might be our last day and uh, we heard a roar coming from the crowd and we didn't first know what it was and then as we listened more closely uh, we heard them saying welcome 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 we want peace we want peace and it was such a beautiful sight to behold and we got a chance to address the crowd and to say that we were disgusted by our government's policies, that while our government tells us that there are no innocent people being killed, uh, we have seen the pictures and we know the names of innocent people who have been killed, uh, and that we think that their lives are as important as our lives and their children's lives are as precious as ours. Uh, and each time we said something like that, there was just a roar from the crowd as our words were translated. And um, we said that we were going to go home and keep working to change our government's policies. And there was a Pashtun man at one of our meetings that came up and, and put his hand on his heart and said, if you came here to win our hearts and minds, uh, you have done that. 
And another a woman who came up said, we have seen you on the TV every day. We have heard your words, and they've really reached us deep down, and that you have done more to improve the image of American citizens than all the billions of dollars that your government has been throwing at Pakistan over the years. So it really reinforced to us um, what many of us uh, know deep down, which is that when the United that all when all these people know of the United States is predator drones, reaper drones, hellfire missiles, terrorizing the community, that all we are going to reap in response is hellfire, is hatred, uh, is recruitment of extremist organizations. But if we stop using that kind of hammer, which hasn't worked in the last 11 years, and declare an end to the war on terror, indeed, Osama bin Laden has been killed, most of the people involved in 9-11 have either been killed uh, or are in prison, uh, and started reaching out with the arm that we haven't used, which is diplomacy, peace negotiations, nonviolent re resolution of conflict, reaching out to the elders, the tribal leaders in these areas, um, we will be met with mutual respect. If we reach out with compassion for them, with love for them and their children, we will be met with compassion and love as well. And so I think as we go into tomorrow, what's going to be very, very important talk by President Obama, let's listen very carefully to what he says. And I hope there will be elements in there that indicate a change of policy, but I'm afraid that it will not be nearly the kind of change in policy that we need to see. What we need to see is a commitment to getting the troops out of Afghanistan. What we need to see is a commitment to uh, releasing the 86 prisoners who've been cleared for release in Guantanamo and speedy trials for the others. Uh, and what we need to see is a real commitment, not just a shift from using drones in the hands of the CIA and putting it in the hands of the military. Um, what we really need to work for is an end to the use of these killer drones that are a weapon, really, of terrorizing communities, as well as a weapon that I think uh, has be been shown to kill so many innocent people and send a terrible message to the world um, that we think we can go anywhere we want, kill anyone we want on the basis of secret information, uh, we are leading to a world of chaos and lawlessness. So if we put an end to the use of these killer drones, if we recommit ourselves to international law, and I would add to our own US Constitution, we would be better liked by people throughout the world, and I think we would be safer here at home. Thank you very much. So Judy, if it's okay before we do questions, if we have Max, yeah, come and, and talk about some of the work that's happening locally. Uh, th thank you for the uh, excellent presentation. The, the photographs, I, I could see where people are growing here. I think what you're saying is so important. Give these photographs, let people see this. You know, they change in their opinions. But anyway, I'm going to uh, tell you what's happening in Baltimore. Uh, you saw on the screen that there's a drone caucus. Well, last May, we, we actually took a drone grapple 
Code Pink has a group drove around the country, which they're going to have over at uh, the National Defense uh, University where Obama was speaking. We took it to a Rupert Parker's office. That's Rupert Parker. We know the Congress president of the office is He was on the Dome Caucus. We started, we started a postcard campaign sending him postcard. He's no longer on the Dome Caucus. in his office, the drone outside, the protest. I can't confirm that there was a quick quote, I'm just telling you. Take the victory where you can, Max. <laughs> if you want to know about Johns Hopkins University, because that's the lab here that's doing drone research, you, you didn't see Ed Aronson's excellent piece in the Baltimore City paper called The Kill Chain. That gives you all the information. If anybody hasn't seen the article, wants to see the article, see me. Tomorrow, tomorrow happens to be uh, Johns Hopkins' uh, homeward commencement. And probably for 20 some years now, we've been handing out peace diplomas at Johns Hopkins University's homeward campus. We'll be there tomorrow, 8 o'clock, at the football stadium, right across from One World Cafe. Anybody wants to hand out peace diplomas, please join us. <laughs> Inside the peace diploma, we ask students and their, and their uh, families to start working for peace. We bring up how much the applied physics laboratory is getting from the Navy. It's a Navy lab doing all kinds of military research. It's astonishing, but February 15th, the Navy just gave them their latest contract for five years, $2 billion in military work out of the Biophysics Lab, sort of in North America. Also, as part of what they're doing about them, they're doing swarming drone research. Last May, eight of us sat in the President's office for eight hours because we were trying to get a meeting with the President and also the director of the uh, laboratory, Ralph Semmel, to talk about why are you doing this. A campus is to be open. All the research is classified. So there's a student group on campus called the Human Rights Working Group. They're doing a lot of good work. They brought Medea, for example, speak. You, you wouldn't have noticed, but Anne White was one of the people who went to Pakistan. She was in, in the PowerPoint uh, presentation. She spoke there about all of this, how we have to take on the universities, as you just listen there, we have friends up in uh, Philadelphia taking University of Penn because there's a lot of drone research money going there. So uh, the other thing I wanted to bring to your attention is uh, a group of us from the National Campaign for Nonviolent Resistance, we were in Fairfax County yesterday. We went to the Alexandria the Federal Courthouse there. We presented a criminal complaint. We said in this criminal complaint, we want the U.S. Attorney Office to go after the Central Intelligence Agency because, in our opinion, they're violating the Constitution, international law, etc. And we're urging groups to do this around the country. There's a movie, many of some of you saw, Hidden State, about the draft board raids. It's a great movie, and it showed how that's clogged up the selective service and helped end the war. We can win this campaign that Padilla is, is, is talking about. We can end the campaign to get rid of killer drones, predators, reapers, etc. And anybody who wants to get involved in this, any other piece of form story, whatever is going on, please do. Some people will be in DC tomorrow joining uh, Code Pain. And recognize that Code Pain put this issue on the map, to say the least. I was privileged enough to be at the hearing for for, for Mr. Predator. And it was <laughs> I've been to a lot of demonstrations, a lot of action. And that particular gathering was phenomenal. And this particular person had come into a room filled with many of the peace activists, anti-drone activists, 
who kept repeatedly standing up and telling how many people were killed in Pakistan. Names he could just, he claimed he didn't know any of this, and he hadn't educated. It was that was thank you very much. I'm sorry for taking up so much time. So, Max, I wonder if there's a way to make sure that people who've signed up will also get information about local activities. And if, if you don't mind if you signed up, if we share your, the list with Max, if there's anybody who doesn't want to share it, you can just put a little note on there. Otherwise, we'll assume you're all comfortable with that because I think that he and the group here are just doing fantastic work locally. And um, there are so many local connections to make. So it would be great if some of you were uh, uh, able to join in that. And I, and I want to just do one more thing, um, which is that when Casey came up and talked about Bradley Manning, um, what uh, I, I want to do is, is just let you know that there is a direct connection between Bradley Manning and the work that we have been doing. And that is the uh, information that was leaked through WikiLeaks uh, has been essential in learning about this drone program. Because until the president talks about it tomorrow, um, this was known as a covert program. And we had so little information about it. And thanks to Bradley Manning, uh, we learned that initially the Pakistani government was complicit with the US government in this until the people started speaking out and the Pakistani government changed its tune. We learned that the government of Yemen was complicit and that so enraged the people of Yemen that it was part of the uprising that led to the overthrow of the dictatorship in Yemen. So uh, Bradley Manning's information has been critical in the work that we have been doing as well as other work that people around the world have been doing for peace and justice issues. So uh, I really uh, uh, urge you to get yourself to the rally on June 1st. Uh, also, the hearings, the court-martial is open. Uh, we don't know how many people can get in, but the court-martial will be going on all summer long, right? For They're talking about six weeks, and you are close by. So imagine, I mean, that's history in the making, is to go and sit in the courtroom. Uh, it's quite an extraordinary thing to do. I've had a chance, and Tig, you've been there as well. Uh, so we highly recommend that. And as Casey said, only $10 for the tickets. And raise your hand if you're interested in getting a ticket so she could work with you here. This is to go on June 1st. Raise your hand high there. One, two, three, four, and some of you are still considering it, right? And I'm sure you will. So Casey, if you want to make sure that you have a chance, uh, maybe you could just sit outside at the table after and, and sell them. Great. Okay, sorry for all that long-windedness. Um, let's open it up to discussion. We'd like to have you um, ask your questions in the microphone because we're taping this for um, podcasting from the library's website. So. Uh, yes, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and I was involved with Occupy Baltimore. And all I can say about is it's a war crime, and I'm surprised The Hague isn't going after America for what we're doing. However, my concern is right here at home, and I'm very aware, and I've been following this very closely about the, F, the, uh, the bill that was passed in Congress last year. And I have uh, done a petition, and I did contact the Baltimore City Police Department, and they said your question concerning the use of drones in Baltimore City 
the Baltimore Police Department does not use drones, nor are there any plans to explore the use of such technology. Now my question is this, why aren't Americans right here concerned about the use of drones in their own country? Why isn't the uh, air airline pilots union especially concerned? Because they have to fly the planes and you could put on the air, you know, the uh, flight attendants and everybody else. I have run into such incredible indifference. I am horrified. I mean, I have written to the pilots' union, and they just don't answer. I've contacted the FAA. They don't answer. They say, oh, we, we, you know, that's too political. Well, I don't think it's political if one of those things hits your plane and you get crashed. And um, I would just like to know, uh, is there any way these things can be shot down? <laughs> Well, thank you for the work you're doing, and it's great that you contacted the police department. I mean, that's wonderful citizen activism, and that puts the police department on notice that people are watching, and that in itself is a restraining action. Uh, the reason that there is not more of an outcry is that people don't know, and um, also because people have been taught in the last 11 years to live in fear. And so if you've been told that you can stop uh, people from uh, placing a bomb in, a, in a, a marathon in Boston by having drones overhead, a lot of Americans are going to say, yes, put those drones overhead. But then if you ask them, what do you think about drones flying outside your window to record everything that you're doing, um, they probably would not be so happy about that. With the lack of information, I'm actually really pleased and amazed about how much pushback there has been. There are cities uh, that have passed these resolutions. There are three states that have passed resolutions. There are several dozen of them uh, that, are in the, uh, that are in the works right now. And uh, it has been an interesting combination. I mean, Virginia, which you wouldn't think of as a particularly progressive state, passed a legislation that calls for a moratorium on the, on the use of drones uh, for two years. So I think the more we educate people about it, the more they will become active in their own communities. Oh, and shooting them down. Well, they, uh, they can uh, easily be shot down. In fact, there are conservatives like, what's his name? Uh, no, the um, Charles Krautheimer. Who, who is a, a writer, um, a very conservative, who said that the first person to shoot down a drone will be a folk hero in the United States. Um, it was asked once in a congressional hearing, and um, it was said that that would probably be illegal to shoot down a drone because uh, it's uh, in reckless endangerment, uh, because who knows what could happen with the drone that you shot down. Uh, but um, certainly there are people who are saying, bring them on. Uh, the hacker community is saying, bring them on, because uh, uh, a uh, professor in Austin, Texas, showed how with $1,000 worth of equipment they could uh, bring down a drone. So um, there are certainly nonviolent ways to bring them down. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, I think that the case of the drones, as with the case of Bradley Manning, is just a prelude to what will happen in this country when they fully enforce the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And what I find appalling, like with the last speaker, is that people don't seem to understand how 
really close that is to occurring and that really Obama, he's really worse than Bush in a lot of his policies, you know. And i like to know where is the peace activist like Cindy Sheehan on these issues concerning him and what will it take for Americans to understand that what's happening in Pakistan and Yemen today will be happening over here tomorrow? So when Obama was campaigning, there was uh, the first time around, there was such tremendous desire to get rid of George Bush and the horrible policies of the Bush administration that people threw their hopes and desires and uh, perhaps even their own ideas onto Obama and really became convinced that he was going to move us into a new era. Uh, and unfortunately, that led to the decimation of the peace movement. Um, there was also other reasons, the financial collapse, people not having the time and the economic wherewithal to do some of this work. And so uh, groups like mine, Code Pink, we had 300,000 people on our mailing list and we had over 300 groups that spontaneously uh, uh, grew up during the Bush years, came up, come Obama and they all almost died out. Um, and Cindy Sheehan, who had a big following under the Bush years, found that she had no following afterwards. She would call events all the time and nobody would come. She's doing a, a bike ride across the United States right now, uh, a tour, a peace tour uh, by, by bike, and only gets maybe a dozen people, if that many, to come out. So it's not for lack of trying, it's for lack of a following right now. Uh, so it's been very hard to build up the momentum and um, it's something that we have to continue to do. Uh, we have to really teach people that it's not about who's in the White House, it's not about which um, party is in power, it's not about really even comparing policies of one or the other. It's about a military, uh, industrial, congressional, presidential complex. <laughs> You know, it's what Eisenhower warned us about in the 1950s that has a momentum of its own, uh, of tremendously powerful companies that make a living and a very good living off of war and want to keep war going. And uh, that is what we are up against. But I think we're actually coming back to more of an upswing in building a movement again, and I'm hopeful about that. Uh, thank you, Medea, for your work. Um, I wonder if you know about or could comment on the next thing that's coming along, robot warriors? So the, drone, uh, the drones are bad enough, but what's in the works and probably being researched right here at Johns Hopkins is the next uh, uh, technology that takes the pilot that's remotely controlling these drones now totally out of the loop. And so these are uh, what are called killer robots, that they are autonomous, that they are pre-programmed, and they can go out on their own and kill and work together in swarms and call in other drones. And the horrifying prospect of this being used in reality has caused a campaign uh, to be launched by groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and groups overseas. In fact, I was in London a couple of weeks ago at the campaign launch to stop the killer robots. 
and uh, many people who are involved in it are people who have been successful in the past of doing international campaigns against landmines and cluster bombs, stopping um, the blinding lasers before they were even used. So it's good that there is a, a well-oiled um, international campaign that's now trying to stop the killer robots before they become uh, uh, implemented. Uh, I just wanted to add that you mentioned the tour de peace that uh, Cindy and Dee Dee, her sister, is on. They're going to join us at the Central Intelligence Agency on June 29th. We're going to have a protest against drones, uh, killer drones at the CIA on, on that particular day. So I wanted to let people know. Cindy, as you said, is very active and also her sister is very active. So anybody wants to join us, protest drones, Central Intelligence Aid, belly of the beast, see me. In the, um, the legal consideration of drones, there's a, a useful legal concept that I keep hoping to hear, but I don't hear it, and that's a bill of attainder. A bill of attainder was a type of criminal law that the British Parliament used to pass, and it wasn't against a type of behavior, it was against a person. It would say, Joe is an enemy of the state and all his property is forfeited, or Jack better not set foot in Britain anymore. Um, <coughs> Article 1, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution specifically prohibits Congress from uh, passing bills of attainder. They were one of the abuses that particularly rankled those who led the American Revolution and wanted to them, it made them want to get away from Great Britain. Now, the kill list for drones is worse than a bill of attainder because you don't even have a debate in a house of the legislature. Somebody could stand up and oppose it in parliament, presumably, but here you have a couple of guys in a back room, including the president, who just make this decision, you know, even whatever scraps of due process might have existed in the parliamentary process are quite absent. And I'd like to see people emphasize that there's something that's specifically prohibited in the first article of the U.S. Constitution that isn't even as bad as what Obama's doing like every week. Well, I, I dedicate a chapter of the book to the legal issues and refuting what the administration has uh, been leaking out about their legal justifications. Um, it was really interesting to look at Eric Holder's letter today and um, he, in the admission that the U.S. has killed four Americans, um, they had an American in there that I don't think any of us that do this work had ever heard of. Uh, this is a, a guy named Jude Mohammed, who I'm actually very anxious to find out more about, who they say they killed in Pakistan uh, several years ago. Now imagine that somehow the administration says that it would be a national security risk to even admit uh, when they have killed an American and they have waited now for years to tell us this information. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. Um, I, I won't go into the legal parts for people who are not uh, all that interested in legal issues, um, but I do encourage you to buy the book because I try to simplify it in the book and make it 
um, more in lay terms. And I think we have to be able to refute the arguments that Obama will talk about tomorrow, refute the arguments that some of our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues say about how these drones are the only alternative to uh, boots on the ground if you don't want Americans dying, if you don't want to spend billions of dollars in taxes to fight <clears throat> this war on terror, this is the only alternative. Um, and you will also be supporting the work of Code Pink if you buy a book. So hope you do. Great. Let's take just one more question sure. because we need to allow some time for book signing and more conversation. Okay. So you're the last question. Um, yes, I wanted uh, to uh, ask you. You mentioned there's a protest tomorrow. It, could you talk about that in in Washington, like how we can get involved? Uh, and the other question is, I, I heard a report on public radio an interview with a drone pilot that talked about when he killed a child and he's suffering now from PSTD and I wonder if you had gotten involved in or knew any more about that case and uh, the other just a quick historical note aircraft have been used against US citizens uh, Billy Mitchell uh, organized or tried to organize a bombing raid against the uh, uh, West Virginia coal miners, southern coal miners in the 20s. It turned out a fiasco. One of the planes crashed, and it was great. And they missed the bombs, totally missed the miners. But there have it's not drones, but aircraft. Republic Steel used aircraft against uh, the uh, steelworkers in Warren, Ohio, in 1937. So just a to quick, try to kill them? Uh, not to kill. They were flying. Uh, uh, supplies in to break the strike. The, the steel workers shot at those planes. Republic Steel offered a $1,000 reward to shoot the in, uh, information regarding shooting down uh, their aircraft. So there was a, you know, the, the steel workers weren't real happy about the use of the airplanes. Uh, but they didn't uh, actually, they, they killed 18 workers though in that strike. Memorial Day, uh, they, not from aircraft, but Memorial Day Massacre and other locations. But, but Yes, they were. They, yes, yes. Billy Mitchell tried to drop bombs on, on the. They used biplane. They were biplane bombers. They tried to drop bombs on the coal miners. Well, that's a very good example um, to bring up because I think when we look at who are the allies that we can get in this movement. Um, that would be a good one to go to some of the unions to talk about how these potentially would be used. It's not just crowd control, it's also spying on different communities, and we know environmental community, peace community, uh, the uh, Muslim community, the black community, the immigrant community, but you bring up a very good point, which is union organizers. And uh, especially if drones can be and why they will be in the hands of, um, uh, they will be used for commercial purposes. And we know that those who have the most money, the corporations, will get the biggest and baddest drones. So thank you for bringing that up. And uh, you, you asked about the protest tomorrow. Um, so there are two. There's one locally, which is about uh, giving out the peace diplomas. And Max, do you want to just repeat that for people? Sure. 8 a.m. till 9 a.m. Uh, University Parkway, right by the football stadium, the main entrance, right across the street from One World Cafe. We're going to have breakfast afterwards. Well, that sounds like a lovely way to start the day. <laughs> and giving out peace diplomas is a very positive way. We're always looking for positive ways to make our point, and that's a really great one. And uh, then, Tig, you want to mention tomorrow what, what we're going to be doing? Well, tomorrow we'll be outside the uh, National Defense University. It's on 2nd. We'll be at 2nd and Q Southwest. 
the, if you came from Baltimore, you could take the train to Union Station or a bus to Union Station or some like that, and then um, get on the metro. It's the blue line to the SEU waterfront, which is Southeastern University waterfront. And then you'll walk down four blocks down 4th uh, Street Northwest, and you'll come to uh, 4th and P, and you'll be right in front of that university. We're going to be starting, I'm going to be there early at 9 o'clock, but people will be starting to come around 11 or later because they eventually will close off that street um, due to the president's arrival. But it'll be exciting. We've got tons of props and ideas, and we're going to broadcast the speech by, by President Obama loudly, very loudly, so people can hear it, and we will be loud ourselves. And <laughs> then we will hold a press conference afterwards to answer the, uh, what Obama has, has said in his speech, famous speech tomorrow. And we have a representative from Pakistan who will be there, a representative from Yemen who will be there, and we have a woman who has been on a water-only uh, hunger strike since May 1st in solidarity uh, with the hunger strikers in Guantanamo. So it'll be a big day tomorrow, and uh, I think if you buy your book now, you will be prepared to hear the president's speech and uh, to respond to it yourself. So thank you very much for coming. And Judy, do you have a, a way of closing? No, I just want to say on behalf of all of us, thank you so much. Thank you.